This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode in New Books in General History. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Courtney Hillebrecht, who is coming to us from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, about her book, Saving the International Justice Regime, Beyond Backlash Against International Courts, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. This book is at the forefront of a new conceptualization of backlash politics. Uh, Dr. Hillebrecht brings together theories, concepts, and methods from international law, international relations, human rights, and political science to really examine three questions about backlash in international courts. What is backlash and what forms does it take? Why do states and elites engage in backlash against international human rights and criminal courts? And what can stakeholders and supporters of international justice do to meet these challenges? I found this book really interesting in both raising questions and then really effectively answering them. So I am thrilled to be able to interview today Dr. Courtney Hillebrecht about her book. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I was wondering if we could start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about how did you come to this research question and to write this book? Yeah, so I really came to this book uh, through two different ways. So first, around the time that I started thinking about these questions of backlash and just general the resilience of the international justice regime, there was a lot of chatter in the academic and policy communities about backlash and, and bad behavior. And if there was a difference, what that difference might be, how we defined it. And a lot of the work at that point was really based on singular examples. And so my sense was there might be some broader patterns that are worth exploring there. So that was sort of one motivation. On the other hand, in many ways, I view this book as a response to my first book, which is on compliance with international human rights tribunals rulings, which really looked at the relationship of the tribunals to the states and then what happens after. This, to some degree, is the opposite, how states and elites are interacting with the tribunals. So turning those arrows in the opposite direction, as it were. But combined, my interest in the tribunals, this sort of ongoing conversation in academia and the policy world about backlash really inspired me to dig in and think about backlash across a number of institutions and a number of different manifestations. Got it. That makes a lot of sense and brings me really nicely to my next question, um, which is, can you explain to our audience how you conceive of backlash and how is it different from bad behavior of individual elites in a particular headline or news story. Yeah. So, you know, as you're working on these book projects, it obviously takes takes many years and, and lots of, of thought and contemplation. And really the way that I got to my definition of backlash and my understanding of backlash was through a process of elimination, of trying to decide what backlash is not. And the first one that I crossed off my list is this sort of normatively bad behavior. So just because I find something distasteful or um, 
unsavory with respect to treatment of the international justice regime doesn't necessarily mean that it poses a threat or a challenge to international justice. So normatively bad behavior, from my personal view, what I'm viewing as bad behavior, isn't sufficient to be an attack on the tribunal's authority. And that's ultimately where I landed. That backlash is a sustained attack on the tribunal's structural, adjudicative, and moral authority. So that means that it's not isolated examples. It's not even long-held sovereignty claims. And it's not even that pushback and resistance that is really inherent in the international adjudication project, um, but rather it's sustained attacks on the tribunal's authority. But it took me a long time to come to that definition. And like I said earlier, there was a lot of uh, process of elimination that went into this ultimate decision of, okay, let's define backlash as these sustained attacks on authority. So that really comes through in the book. It, it doesn't sound like in the book, like you agonized over this. It's very crisp. Um, so you've clearly succeeded in the writing. And I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that now that we've got an idea of what your definition is, and there's sort of these three different prongs of it. Um, so what different forms can backlash take? Right. So backlash can take many different forms. And in the book, I really only look at four Uh, which I think is a pretty broad view, but not exhaustive. Um, And the four that I look at are withdrawals from international tribunals. And, you know, the lawyers in the crowd will know that there are ways to withdraw from treaties, including those that form courts uh, lawfully and then less lawfully, one might say. Um, So I'm looking at withdrawals. Then I'm looking at substitutions. So this would be a state saying, you know, I don't like your form of human rights or your form of justice. I'm going to create my own court. And that court will almost inevitably have a much much more watered down version of accountability or justice. So, for example, when leaders in the African Union were trying to create a tri-chamber court um, within the AU, notably the individual accountability mechanism there would not hold heads of state accountable, right? Which clearly the ICC does. So these substitutions allow leaders to say, hey, we still like human rights and justice, just not your version. But in doing that, they're undermining the structural authority of those tribunals, as well as their moral and adjudicative authority. So those are the first two forms I examine. And and those are very ostentatious. They are headline grabbing. They're very clear um, to, to most observers. The other two forms of backlash I look at in the book is really the usurpation of budgets and bureaucracies. This is really sort of fine-grained details of how these institutions work, but by overtaking the internal workings, the budgets and the bureaucracies, states and elites can start to attack the tribunals from the inside out, essentially. And then the fourth are these doctrinal challenges that push and push and push the limits of the court's jurisdiction to water it down to the point where they're really not effectively exercising authority over their member states or over the individuals that might uh, be tried there. So why might a state or elite choose one type of those over the other? Would they do multiple at once? How does that kind of picking and choosing amongst the different kinds go about? Yeah, so 
oftentimes it's a multi-pronged strategy. And one of the arguments that I that I make in the book, and, and really I think a research agenda that this book hopefully sets out, um, is trying to understand sort of the, the menu of backlash options and the timing of them. But broadly, a couple patterns emerge. So when states have a lot to gain from playing up sort of the neo-colonial argument that the ICC or maybe even the European Court of Human Rights or the Inter-American Court are neo-imperialist institutions, they might that argument might resonate with the domestic public. And the more ostentatious forms of backlash, the withdrawals, the substitutions, can play really well to a domestic audience. If, however, you're a state like Denmark, which was pushing back against the European Court of Human Rights a couple of years ago um, with respect to refugee and migration policies, it's not as easy to just withdraw from the European Court of Human Rights or claim that you're going to replace it. Instead, by issuing these doctrinal challenges and trying to control budgets and bureaucracies below the radar, that's a way for states that are primarily strong Western democracies to engage in backlash, but much more subtly in a way that will resonate better with their domestic audience that's saying, hey, we're going to withdraw, we're going to walk out. So that's a really clear kind of way of picking and choosing, which is really helpful. And I was wondering if you could, particularly for the last two prongs, the bureaucratic and the doctrinal, um, help us understand a bit what do elites who choose these methods hope that these forms of backlash will achieve? Yeah, so really the idea with both the budgets and bureaucracies and, and the doctrinal challenges, although maybe I'll address them separately, is that you can handicap the courts from the inside. So let's take the example of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is sort of the predecessor or precursor to the Inter-American Court. In 2016, the Inter-American Commission was quite literally unsure if it could keep its actual lights on, and it was facing a major budgetary crisis because states like Brazil, which were upset with um, the commission's stance on the Bela Monte Dam, had decided that if they cut the budget, then the commission can't process any more cases, right? So this is an attack on the commissions and then subsequently in the courts adjudicative authority. If there are no cases processed, there's no cases to rule on. There's no adverse judgments to hand down. And so those budget cuts came at the very beginning of the adjudicative process, but had the intended impact, which was sort of turning off the flow of cases for a while, while the commission and the court tried to regroup and get some uh, really much needed funds. Um, similarly, if you place bureaucrats, or in the case of the ICC, even judges that are ill-equipped and ill-prepared to really serve and preside over an international courtroom, well, chances are that's not going to be particularly effective justice. So by trying to control budgets and bureaucracies, states and elites can very subtly, and over time, right? they're playing the long game here over time, weaken the adjudicative and, as a result, moral authority of these tribunals. Thank you. That's that's a helpful explanation. <laughs> sure. um, so now that we've sort of established the conceptual contribution that you're making with this idea of what is backlash, the four different pieces, um, another aspect of the book that I really appreciated was that 
you don't just look at individual cases in terms of this particular challenge to a treaty, but in fact, you look at three courts and three international justice regimes um, and how backlash has impacted that. So you focus on the European Court of Human Rights, the Inter-American Human Rights System, and the International Criminal Court. So can you, why those three? And what does that, why does looking at those three help us understand this? Yeah, so part of my interest in looking at these three institutions, which really cross two international legal regimes, was to illustrate that many of these backlash trends are shared across the system, right? This is not just something that's happening in the European system or just at the ICC, but rather this is a larger phenomenon experienced by the entire international justice system or justice regime, as I call it. You know, academia kind of has this odd quirk where we we separate international humanitarian and criminal law from international human rights law. But in in practice, particularly I would say for, for those experiencing violence, that's very much an academic or intellectual distinction. And I think the politics of backlash similarly do not heed this divide that we as academics have created between criminal law and human rights law. So part of this was a larger point that I wanted to make, which was these two legal systems are really experiencing similar threats right now. Let's consider them as part of a holistic global regime rather than as disparate parts. In terms of the three courts, I mean, part of it is familiarity, right? So the courts that I've I've been writing on throughout my career have been the European and Inter-American courts and the ICC. So I had a better sense of what was happening within them. But these are also very active courts, um, you know, compared to, say, the African Court for Human and People's Rights, the European and Inter-American courts have a pretty substantially larger caseload. Um, and the ICC, you know, being this global institution, um, while not a lot of cases, has a big impact. So these three cases, I think, are really illustrative of these larger trends that we're seeing. Yeah. So that's actually something I really wanted to ask you about because my initial response in seeing that you looked at three courts was, how are you going to handle the massive caseloads? Just how are you going to get through all that information and make sense of it? So I was wondering if you could sort of answer that. How did you approach the fact that two of these three courts have really extensive caseloads and a lot of detail going on? And of course, the ICC is not exactly simple to understand every single case either. So from a research perspective, how did you tackle having three very active institutions as your case studies? Yeah. So, I mean, let's be honest, it was really overwhelming at first, right? I mean, just the European court alone with something like 50,000 petitions it receives a year is just a massive amount of data. Um, But within each of the systems, so I went into the project knowing that I wanted to at least look across the human rights and humanitarian law regimes. Uh, Within each of the systems, I then sort of narrowed down to key country studies, and then from there to key cases or events. So in the inter-American system, for example, I knew I really wanted to do um, a comparative case study to understand the different positioning around withdrawal in particular that we see from Venezuela versus Colombia and Peru. And so here was sort of a natural case study set up. Colombia should, by all intents and purposes, be leading the way for withdrawal, but instead it's not, right? Rather, we see these withdrawals in 
uh, in Peru and Venezuela. So to some extent, there were some natural puzzles that helped me winnow down the cases within the various courts. Beyond that, you know, one of the goals of the project was to identify backlash by its manifestations. So that helped me narrow, winnow through a lot of cases as well. So if I'm looking at budgets and bureaucracies, well, the ICC, perhaps interestingly to listeners who don't study the ICC, if you're going to look at bureaucracies in the ICC, you have to look at Japan. So the question itself always also led me to particular cases as I tried to sift through thousands and thousands of, of legal cases and documents and archive work and so on and so forth. So let's go into those a little bit more for the people who have not had the wonderful experience that I have of actually reading the book yet, though I encourage you to go read it. Um, tell us a little bit more about why you need to think about Japan when it comes to the ICC's budget. Sure. So Japan is the largest contributor to the ICC's budget. And Japan's policy with respect to the ICC has been to really be proactive in staffing its bureaucracy to help shape the ICC in the direction that Japan um, sees as most productive. So you know, that, that's a case there where early interviews in the field um, with policymakers and scholars and activists in Japan helped me identify some of those, you know, smaller level questions of who's involved, what are they doing and why. Great. Um, I definitely was not expecting Japan to be such a big financial deal for the ICC. So I learned that among many other things. Um, could you give us also a brief uh, explainer about Colombia versus Peru and Venezuela when it comes to withdrawal? That was an interesting one too. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we think just sort of putting the theory aside for a second, what would prompt a state, what would prompt a country to leave an international court, sort of throw its hands up and say, you know, that's enough? Well, it would probably be the sheer number of cases and cases that really affected issues that were close to national security. And Colombia meets both of those criteria. It has more cases than it knows what to do with at the inter-American system. And almost all of those cases deal with real national security issues, by which I mean, you know, the, the war on drugs, the FARC, uh, paramilitaries. These are really key security issues. So by all intents and purposes, Colombia should have washed its hands of the ICC many years ago, uh, excuse me, of the Inter-American Court. But it doesn't. In contrast, Peru, which had a su somewhat similar set of cases um, with respect to the Fujimori regime and uh, Shining uh, Sendero Luminoso, the insurgency movement, they do withdraw. And Venezuela also withdraws. So similar region, a generally similar set of cases, two countries withdraw, one doesn't. That seems to me to be a natural puzzle. The argument that I make in the book about these is that when we think about international adjudication, it's their effect on domestic politics that really can prompt backlash. Colombia, despite its many decades of conflict, has always had generally free and fair presidential elections. And there was always turnover with, with presidents. That was not the case in Peru and in Venezuela. And the Inter-American Court really was shining a light on domestic challenges that threatened uh, regime stability, that threatened the executive's position. And so they withdraw, withdrew, rather, while Colombia did not. That makes a lot of sense explained that way. Um, 
Do you have a similar sort of example you can help us understand from the book, particularly around sort of why a country might go for substitution or a doctrinal challenge? Um, How do those two in particular sort of compare? Yeah, so um, let's talk about Russia for a little bit. So, so Russia has has mounted a really significant uh, doctrinal challenge to the European Court of Human Rights. The idea with the human rights courts is that they will provide recourse to victims who do not, uh, who are not able to access justice domestically. Upon a judgment, then domestic courts are required and domestic institutions are required to comply with just satisfaction, with changing policies and practices to align with, in this case, the European Convention on Human Rights. It does not facilitate or suggest that there should then be constitutional review of that ruling, right? So that ruling is essentially final. Russia innovated a policy, let's say, which gave its courts um, the ability to do a constitutional review of the European Court of Human Rights rulings and decide whether or not the European Court was in line with the Russian constitution. Now, usually it's the other way around. Is the constitution in line with the European Court? But Russia said, no, no, we're going to flip it. Is the European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence in line with ours? And it's a really mundane or really niche argument, right, that if you're not paying very close attention to the European court, to the, to the Russian legal system, doesn't matter much. But what this means, essentially, is that Russia has declared itself uncommitted or unobligated by any given European Court of Human Rights ruling if its own courts don't like it. And that's precisely the opposite reason of why these institutions were set up in the first place. But then it's not just Russia, right? We see Italy saying, oh, maybe that's not a bad idea. We see other states pushing, trying to expand what's known as the margin of appreciation, which is essentially the wiggle room that states have to implement the court's rulings. But if we keep expanding, expanding, expanding that wiggle room, that latitude, and keep giving domestic courts the ability to do a constitutional review, essentially, of the European Court of Human Rights, well, then what power does the European court have after all? So that would be a doctrinal. Yeah, that's a really good, that, that's, a, that's a good example of it, of flipping the question of, is the international court in line with a national constitution? That is something we often see the other way around. So that really helps clarify, I think, for a lot of our listeners, what a doctrinal challenge can look like. How then would that be different from a substitution challenge? Yeah, so so think about doctrinal challenges as working within the scope of the existing institution, whereas the substitution is going to create an alternative external to the institution. And I mentioned before the case of the African Union. You know, AU leaders were pushing for a mass withdrawal from the ICC. And they said, don't worry, we're going to create our own institution and we're going to hold perpetrators accountable, but not perpetrators that happen to be heads of state, right? So we still like accountability and justice and we value these things, but we like our version, which prioritizes head of state immunity. So the substitution here is essentially saying it provides a smokescreen, but also undermines the core values of the international justice regime, which is essentially accountability for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Similarly, Venezuela really pushed, this was during Chavez's rule, really pushed to create um, a court in uh, UNASUR, which would not be active on social and political rights. And the inter-American system is very much active on social and political rights, but instead would be a court that essentially gave states a lot of power to go after dissidents who had the, the gall essentially to speak against the government, right? So again, the smokescreen is we still appreciate human rights, just not these, we want our own. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you for explaining in detail with some good cases. Um, and I think there's very clearly room for elites to choose multiple different strategies or switch from one to another, depending on what they're doing. And of course, how people respond to this kind of backlash. So thinking about sort of um, what's coming next, given that you so clearly look both at history, but also things that are clearly currently happening and continue to be um, iterating. What forms of backlash do you think are the most likely to continue in the future? Are there any that are on the decline, any that are on the rise, based on obviously the massive uh, case number of cases you've looked at and how this is developing? Yeah. So I would say, you know, of the four that I'm looking at, the, the withdrawals and the substitutions require a lot of political capital and really the right charismatic leaders to pull them off. Um, I would say we're going to see a lot of doctrinal challenges, um, thinking particularly of the European court. The margin of appreciation debate is, is quite far from settled. And I think there's going to be a lot of, of backlash against cases handed down by the court that try to really limit what that margin of appreciation is. And it's not going to be just from Russia. I think we're going to see this from Western democracies as well. Similarly, budgets and bureaucracies will continue to be a target for states that are looking to curb or undermine the authority of these international institutions. In terms of forms of backlash that I did not include in the book, but that I am keeping an eye on both as a sort of observer, but then also as a scholar, is the attack on litigants before these institutions um, and how attacks on civil society broadly have a dampening effect on international human rights and criminal adjudication. So if your litigants are unable to bring a case to the inter-American or human rights or European human rights courts, well, then the courts can't rule on them and they can't hand down adverse judgments. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that, unfortunately, in the coming years. And so amongst either the ones that you have in the book, or I think the issue about kind of getting to people before they can bring a case, um, which do you think might be the biggest challenge for the international justice regime? It may not be the most common thing, um, but I was, for example, really struck by the argument around budgets, how they, that may not be something that happens to every court all the time. It may not be something that um, grabs headlines, but that 
in a lot of ways is sort of an existential threat to a court, whereas one country withdrawing from it may be less of a kind of make it or break it moment for that particular court. Mm -hmm. Um, But given that you obviously know the subject much better than I do, um, what types of backlash do you think pose the most risk for the international justice regime going forward? Yeah, I mean, your point about budgets is, I think, is, is spot on in the sense that the the tribunals are dependent on states for budgets, for bureaucrats, for their very existence. It is an existential crisis. Now, I think that the tribunals could go a fair ways in mitigating that that crisis by actually cleaning up their internal processes, uh, both with respect to budget, but also uh, bureaucratic process. Who is who's staffing these positions? How are they getting selected, et cetera? Um, that's never going to fully satisfy this inherent dependency that the tribunals have on their member states, right? That's just built into the system. But but more transparency and better process, I think, can can chip away a little bit at this existential crisis. I think the biggest challenge, really, that the courts pose, and this also is, is really sort of baked into their very being, or that the courts face, rather, is that the states and those elites that are seeking to undermine the international justice regime have at their disposal political resources, diplomatical, diplomatic resources that the tribunals don't. The tribunals are courts, and they need to walk a very fine line with respect to how much diplomatic and political engagement they enter into, whereas those that are trying to undermine them are political actors by definition. All of which is to say that the opponents of international justice have thus far done a much better job articulating to a broad audience the downside of international justice than the tribunals have articulating the upsides of international justice. And they continue to lose this, what's essentially a PR game. But part of the reason for that is that they're courts. They're not diplomats, they're courts. Do you think that there's anything that the courts could do to even that up a bit or improve their perception? Yes. So I think there's a lot that they can do, right? As with the budgets, they can never escape this entirely, but there's a lot that they could do. So um, one of the things that I, I was researching for the concluding chapter are the court's outreach mechanisms. And they all have them, but to access this information, you need to, A, know that they exist. And by they, I mean both the court and the outreach mechanism, whether that's a victim's fund or financial help for litigating your case. You need to be able to access the website, which none of these institutions have websites that are easily accessible. You need to be able to do it in English, maybe Spanish or French if you're lucky. And you need to know exactly where to find it and who to call. It took my research assistant and I weeks to sort out these systems. And we are not the average user of the international justice regime. So the international courts gain some of their power, right, by being this epistemic community. This is sort of their moral authority. They have authority by virtue of being courts, but that's also very alienating. And until they can do a better job translating that work and making things like victims funds accessible to victims, 
right? They're going to be on the on their back foot here. So really being clear about what their purpose is, how to reach them, how to access opportunities for victims, how the courts will protect you if you want to pursue a case there. They need to do a much, much better job doing that. And they also need to do a better job philosophically, I think, articulating the role and the purpose of international justice within a larger political environment where victims might want electricity and roads. Courts aren't going to provide that, but they need to do a better job saying, here's what we can provide and why it should help. There were some great uh, examples of that in your book that I'd encourage people to look at if they're interested. Um, And I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail as well about the idea of better transparency and where courts are maybe shooting themselves in the foot around how they're run and how decisions are made um, and what could be done to improve that. Yeah. So transparency and and international justice don't don't always go together, uh, maybe ironically. But, you know, one example here would be election of judges at the ICC. So there's a two-list process where candidates are identified for either their experience with international law, criminal law in particular, or their experience in the courtroom. And the voting process, while transparent by definition, in in reality is sort of backdoor negotiations. And what this means is that the judges are to some extent or can be discredited by opponents before they even start their job because there is very little transparency about how they're actually selected and what that backroom trading actually looks like. So it's the lack of transparency, sometimes more than the actual outcome, that puts the judges in a vulnerable position where opponents can say, hey, this is not a legitimate judge for this reason. More broadly, particularly, I think, for the ICC, but not exclusively, I think more transparency about the case selection process really could help justify or could bolster the court's argument that it is not being selective. So, you know, I've done many interviews at the International Criminal Court and the other courts, and the the official line, obviously, of course, is that they're applying the Rome Statute, which is true in terms of selecting cases. But we also know that there are cases in which pursuing justice is more politically feasible than, than others. And I think if there was more of an acknowledgement of the real political limitations of the work of international justice... That would go quite a ways in mitigating this argument that the ICC is is really only after African heads of state or is a neo-colonial institution ruled by the Americans. So acknowledging the difficulty rather than simply saying we're applying the Rome Statute or the European Convention or the Inter-American Convention, I actually think could be beneficial. I think it's a good point about making clear what the calculation is around case selection rather than pretending that it's just about the Rome statute. That's the only factor. Um, and instead being a bit clearer about how that works. And it's definitely interesting about the back room side of things as well. Um, it must be very difficult to do a job if you know that everyone's already made up their mind about it. Um, so thank you for that. Aside from helping the courts get perhaps better websites and um, easier contact us forms, mm-hmm. Um, which sounds silly, but really can make a difference. 
What would you recommend that stakeholders and supporters of the international justice regime can do in response to these backlash challenges? Anything in addition to the recommendations you've already made about what the courts need to do themselves? Yeah, so stakeholders have a really important role to play. And and here, when I think of stakeholders, it's those supporter states who, who really believe normatively and also geopolitically, strategically, in the value of these institutions. So one thing that those states can do is to continue to fund them. So when you have key supporter states starting to pull back on their funding, you know, understandably at times, right, when we hit global economic crises, an international human rights court is probably not going to be at the top of the list. But showing in both deed and rhetoric that these institutions matter for human rights, for geopolitical concerns, can actually go a long way. So consistent stakeholder support, not just when it's good days, but when it's bad days as well, is really going to be critical for the courts to survive upcoming challenges in the next 10, 15, 50 years. So that's one. Two, I would say, is mainstreaming the ideas of international adjudication into other work. For a while, there were a number of states um, Argentina, Switzerland, Costa Rica, Costa Rica, Liechtenstein, who were really pushing for mainstreaming the ICC and the Rome Statute into other work coming out of the UN Security Council. That work is not done. And the more that stakeholder states can continue to facilitate that, the better. More broadly, I would say, particularly within Western democracies, making supporting these states a key part of foreign policy or supporting these institutions a key part of foreign policy can also shore up the institutions, not just materially, but also normatively and change the calculations for elites and states who might be who might have previously had an incentive to undermine a court, we can shape those incentives to change them so that actually the incentive is to support the court or at least to not attack it. Great recommendations, both for the courts themselves and for stakeholders. So thank you very much for that. Um, Moving back to one thing that we mentioned earlier, the idea of so much research, so many cases, um, were there any that were really surprising to you Um, Were there any that you almost included but didn't or found really interesting, but they didn't quite fit? You know, what what got left out during editing, I guess, is the behind the scenes question. Oh, gosh, so much. As one of my advisors used to say, 90% of the iceberg is under the water. So many cases were left on the editing room floor. Um, But but three really stick um, out to me, or, or maybe just two. One is more on Japan. I think there's a lot of really interesting work that we have yet to do to understand Japan's role um, in the ICC and the Rome Statute system. Um, and, and sort of, as you sort of indicated earlier, an unlikely supporter, an unlikely advocate for the international justice regime and the ICC in particular. So Japan's definitely a case that was in the book, um, but is now the bulk of the case study has been removed from the book and will go into a different paper. Um, Botswana is another case that I found absolutely fascinating. So Botswana is an ardent supporter of the International Criminal Court. Um, And one of the reasons I suggest is that because it's using the ICC as sort of this 
you know, Scott Strauss, my colleague and I, we've called this the international legal lasso. So using international justice to get rid of opponents. We came up with that idea domestically, but Botswana is using it regionally. So promoting the ICC while its neighbors that it doesn't necessarily get along with are trying to withdraw from it. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating and I'm going to do some more work on that. And then um, the other country that I'm really interested in, the other case that didn't quite make it in the book, is Nigeria, um, having a very conflicted relationship with the ICC. Beyond the ICC, Brazil, I've got so much more in Brazil that I'd, I'd like to write about. Um, and, and lots more, too, actually, about the, the UK, which played a bigger role in, in my first book and some of the UK's more recent uh, relationship with the European court, I think maybe will come up again in a future paper or two. Amazing. Well, I my traditional last question is always, what are you working on next? And after that answer, I sort of feel like I want to answer for you is next, you're going to tell us more about all of those interesting things. So if you could please add that to your to-do list, um, because I had no idea about Botswana. Um, I knew more about their domestic stuff. I study some Southern African cases myself, and I would love to hear more about that. So if you could make sure that that paper comes out, that, that would be great. <laughs> sure. um, but more seriously, now that this marathon of a book is finished, and in many ways, almost a companion book or a second book to your first one, um, what are you working on now and next, aside from all the additional things that didn't quite fit into this book? Sure. So I have really two main research agendas for the next few years. One is already in progress. Um, I'm working with my colleague, Jill Hagland, to understand domestic implementation of women's rights recommendations across different regimes. Um, and so we've coded thousands of data points over the past few years, and we're starting to put all of that data into conversation with theory. So that's really exciting. And then more broadly, you know, my, my family has rolled their eyes because it's sort of like running a marathon. Everyone is your last one. And so I was like, I think I have one more book in me, um, which uh, will be on sort of transnational challenges and in international adjudication. So international system, international justice regime is, is very state based. But some of the challenges we're seeing right now the very obvious pandemic, um, the excesses and dangers of social media, um, environmental challenges, all of those don't confine to state borders. And so I'm curious to see if and how the international justice regime broadly understood will address those. So that's sort of a longer term term project. And then, you know, as you're saying, these uh, papers that didn't quite make it into the book, um, those are top of my list. I'm very glad to hear that. On the other hand, I also want to read these other research pieces of yours as well. Um, so I do hope that next time you have a book, we will invite you back. Um, so to our audience, I really do recommend this book for those of you looking to understand backlash and responses to it, um, but also for those who are interested in understanding how the international justice regime functions structurally. Um, I found this book to have a really clear and concise explanation of not just what the individual pieces are, so how does the ICC work, for example, but how they all work together and create this international justice regime practically and theoretically. So I would definitely recommend this book to a lot of different people, um, including course reading lists. I think it could be quite helpful. So thank you very much again for sharing your time, Dr. Hillebrecht, and I wish you the best of luck with the rest of your research. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs>